Thank you, Simon. Thanks, Neil. Um, a little bit about myself. Um, I've worked for ADRA for about nearly nine years now. Uh, before that, I was a teacher. Um, and uh, I've worked in, uh, I'm fortunate to work for ADRA in uh, Papua New Guinea. And uh, we'll hear more about that later. And Nepal, New Zealand, and now Australia. And part of the, part of the uh, job that I've got for ADRA Australia is, you know, sometimes I have to wave the flag for ADRA Australia in various places. And this week I was down in South Australia at their big camp. Uh, and the, I was reminded of this talk because they've got this new motorway that goes from north to south, uh, from Adelaide up through the Barossa Valley type thing. And every bridge down there is named after a, a battle or a, you know, a front that the armed forces fought in. So you pass under Gallipoli Bridge, Kokoda Bridge, Tobruk Bridge. Uh, and it was a, a nice reminder that, um, you know, of the people that served in our armed forces. Now, I'm going to, there's going to be a whole heap of pictures coming up. So uh, I'm trying to flick through them quickly. While we're in Nepal, uh, we had an opportunity to um, go to Gallipoli, go to Turkey for uh, a holiday. And uh, I wouldn't really call it a pilgrimage, like some people call it, but uh, it was a family trip uh, with another family friends of ours. And I don't know if you can see, it's fairly squashed. The girls are pretty small. This was in 2012, um, and it was a very hot day. And this was my birthday. So this is uh, Anzac Cove as we see it today. When we were down the bottom, I know you're not supposed to do it, but I wanted to really get a, a feeling of what uh, Gallipoli meant. And, you know, all the pictures that we see of Gallipoli are all usually in trenches or, you know, a lot of bomb-scarred territory and barbed wire and machine guns and things like that. Now, all of those, most of those are gone. Uh, there were some trenches that we found, but we walked from down near the coast, Anzac Cove, and we wanted to get up to Lone Pine. And on the map, it's pretty easy. In real life, it was mighty hard. So only Janaya and Zane Penman um, decided to go with Scott and I. And this is the start of Shrapnel Valley, uh, looking up through to Monash. And the top that you can see up there is the neck, um, names that might ring a uh, a bell with those people who have studied history. Halfway up, we looked, uh, there's a plateau here, and this is Plugs Plateau uh, that uh, was fought for and was part of the high ground that the, uh, the Anzacs took initially. This is the Sphinx, uh, the steep, and you might notice the pictures of the Sphinx and this picture that you see now is almost totally different. The erosion is so... There's so much erosion there that, um, you know, it's barely recognisable uh, at the top. That's uh, the bay looking uh, up towards Istanbul and towards the north. Um, it was all defended and this is why the Anzacs had actually attacked um, at the hill. This is the view looking down towards Anzac Cove. So you imagine snipers, machine guns, mortars, um, all firing down on the boats that arrived that night. This is as close as we could find to a trench uh, that was there. 
Um, so it's barely 20 or 30 centimetres deep now. Um, just a little hollow in a, with some bush overgrowing. And that was the only sign of trenches that we saw in the whole day. This is uh, at the top of Monash Valley, looking across to the big uh, white uh, monument that you can see there is the Turkish monument um, of all their dead uh, and celebrating there. So this is at the top of the neck. This is Lone Pine, and they do have a Lone Pine uh, there. Uh, it's not the original tree. Um, the original tree was basically blasted away. <coughs> now, I want to go through some stats to give you some idea of what um, the armed forces in Gallipoli meant to um, the people of Australia. The average population of Australia around then, or the population of Australia, was around about 4.9 million. So if we round the, the armed forces about 420,000 to the population, it's about 1 in 10. So what I'd like to see, I sort of did a quick calculation, and on each row, I'd like one person to come out as a representative of uh, someone who's going to serve in the armed forces. So whoever's first up in each row, okay, we have, oh, volunteer, thank you, you're going to serve your country, sir. Well done, well done. One row, one row, yes. So only one come from the back, I need three people from the back. So one more, yes, and from the back row, well done. You, my friends, my patriotic people are volunteers in the Australian Armed Forces. Now, what I'd, we have to go through and assess these people, you know. Some people might have flat feet, as you might hear. All right. Um, no, we can get you in, in we can get you in uh, ship shape order at um, boot camp. Uh, sorry, sir, um, can I just ask how old you are? Uh, 59. 59. Did you serve in the Boer War? <laughs> Not quite, no. So, do you have any military experience? No. Um, are you a good engineer? No. What else do you do? No. Oh, sorry, what? <laughs> what, else? what else? What other skills do you have that you could do for the armed forces? Sorry, sir, sit down. <laughs> All right, volunteer, come up. All right. Oh, he looks strapping. I'll, I can leave him. No worries. Yes, yes. Ah. What would you like, where would you like to serve, young lady? Are you, a, are you a nurse? No. Can you be a nurse? No. Can you knit? No. All right. Yes. You can cook, right, you can stay. How old are you, sir? Uh, 75. Uh, sorry, sir, you're going to have to sit down. Um, can I have another volunteer? Yes, thank you. Oh, good strapping young man, thank you very much. Well, you're in. Uh, yes. Uh, have you any? What sort of skills have you got that you can provide for the armed services? I can teach. You can teach. Well done. Yep. Experience. Diver. An officer. Thank you very much. Cooks. Cooks. Right. Surveying. Surveying. You're in. Yes. Engineers. Well done. All right. We we'll look at some other stats here. So these are the these are the people that represent the people of Australia. You are the people of Australia. If you look at the first, well, you can't really see that there, but the first number there is people that have died um, in the AIF. And that number was um, about 60,284 died in service of the AIF 
up until about 1921 where the AIF finished. So if you came home and died of your wounds from gassing or something else, you're still classed in this. So if this is 420,000, 60,000 died. So about one in six. Nine, yes, okay. And let's take one else down the back. Thank you very much. Died in service. The next one, wounded in action. It was about one in three. So can I ask, no, no, you're not, wound, you're not, you're not dead. You can't go home. You have to sit down. So one in three, sit down. One, two, three. One, two, three. Yep, okay. So two sat down, wounded in action. And believe it or not, there was about 431 cases of sickness. So 420 people, 420,000 people served, 431 cases of sickness. Very few people actually got through without being sick. So all the rest of you have been sick, all right? So that gives you an idea, out of the people that left for Australia, those people died, these people were wounded, sometimes died maybe five to 10, 20 years later of their wounds. These people here, we were all sick, and they all came back to Australia. Okay, thank you very much. Of, of the casualties, as you see in the, back, in the last thing, 64%, nearly 65% of the people that served had some sort of casualty or wounding or death. Very, very high number of people. Okay, come out here. This is a bit personal. This is a an interesting story, but a sad story. Does anyone know how old he is? Don't say. How old does he look? Does he look 18? Do you reckon he could pass himself off as 18? Uh, maybe. Yeah, I think so. I think so. He looks like an 18-year-old. This picture that you can see up here and I'll just have Lockie standing here as an example of this uh, guy called Jim Martin. Jim Martin um, attended school in, in uh, Broadmeadows in uh, Melbourne. He, and I had to do a bit of research, but there was a, a policy in Australia that every um, sort of 14 to 18 year old uh, boy, young man, had to do some military practice at school. Or if he wasn't at school, then he had to be part of a sort of a cadets. And Jim Martin was one of those cadets. Jim Martin now had a, a father who was a sort of a horse-drawn cab driver. Um, and he tried to sign up, but he was too old. He was rejected. He asked to turn, uh, go back home. Jim Martin was one of six kids. He was the only son. And he decided to sign up. He went down to the local uh, recruiting office and he convinced them that he was 18. Now, the recruiting officer, there's nothing said about what he did or how he got through, but he was accepted. He actually, his parents tried to stop him, but he said, look, I'm going to do it anyway. If I do it without your permission, I'll change my name, I'll sign up, and I'll never write a letter to you. As a parent, what do you do? He wants to sign up. Do you let him sign up under your name and get letters and know that he's 
you know, where he is and what he's doing. So they let him sign up, the only son of six kids, rest were girls. He went um, to training at Pukapu what, what is now known as Pakapanyal. He was part of the 21st Battalion. He went across to Egypt um, and then on the boat, Gallipoli had already started. This is in July. Gallipoli had already started and they wanted to send recruits, uh, reinforcements. So on the boat on the way, he was torpedoed. The boat was torpedoed. He spent four hours in the water before he was rescued. So you're a good swimmer. <laughs> four hours in the water. They re-got the guys together and then they put them onto um, Gallipoli. And they defended. So do you remember the picture of going up Shrapnel Valley? Um, this side uh, was uh, Plugs Plateau. And on the right-hand side, the Anzacs actually got there on the first day and they basically stayed there. And he, Jim Martin, was part of the force that defended Quinn's post, or Courtney's post. So they get to winter and the amount of sickness and typhoid that went through the, through the um, trenches was terrible. And young Jim got sick and he was actually evacuated. He, he resisted being evacuated for two weeks. I guess if he'd gone earlier, he might have survived. But he, he got out to the boat, he was really, really sick and he actually died at sea on the hospital ship um, and was buried at sea. He enlisted at 14 and three months years old. He died at 14 and nine months old. The youngest soldier to die in Australian services. How old are you in months, years and months? Um, 14 and... Uh, 14 and five months. 14 and five months, so you're probably in the middle of your military training. This is the story of what I think of Gallipoli um, apart from the, the Victoria Crosses and the Battle of Lone Pine, Jim Martin was an Anzac as well. Thanks very much. <clears throat> the other um, hero on the other side of Gallipoli is this man. Does anyone know who he is? Yeah, Ataturk. He wasn't known as Ataturk on the, on the army side. He was known as Ataturk, the first president of Turkey, an absolute military hero. He um, was born in uh, actually Thessalonica, which is Greece now. Um, he attended a, a military school. Um, by the time the Anzacs um, landed at Gallipoli, he was actually in charge of all the uh, armed forces for Turkey, for the Ottoman Empire, on that peninsula. And so he was took in charge. And he was an amazing um, commander. He was the only Turkish general or officer to never lose a battle in the First World War. All the other guys lost Palestine and, and Libya and Egypt. They all lost battles all over the place. This guy never lost a battle. And <coughs> he was an amazing statesman as well. And he became the first president of, of the modern-day Turkey. The first election, 35 women were elected to parliament in Turkey. Now, you don't think of that when you think of uh, Islam, but this man did that. I want to see if I can read this out. You won't be able to read this, but, um, and I probably can hardly see it on here, so I'm going to take my glasses off. 
I can't see it. Can someone read it? Those heroes that shed their blood and lost their lives, you are now lying in the soil of a friendly country, therefore rest in peace. There is no difference between the Johnnies and the Mehmets to us where they lay side by side in this country of ours. You, the mothers who sent their sons from far away countries, wipe away your tears. Your sons are now living in our bosom and are in peace. After having lost their lives on this land, they have become our sons as well. What an amazing statement, isn't it? And I guess that's why maybe the Anzacs lost. These guys were defending their home. You know, there's lots of reasons that are given why, why Australia was fighting, why the Indians were fighting, why the Gurkhas were there, the Canadians, the New Zealanders, the British, the French, all arrived, all there, to, to block off this naval passage. Those sort of reasons were probably not as strong as the reasons of defending their homeland. And I guess that's why they lost. But this statement uh, was actually said in 1934. So he was already president of Turkey. It was only four years before he died. And um, an amazing thing, this is from the commander of the troops fighting the Anzacs. The next major thing that you think of when you think of spirit and, and, and Anzac is Kokoda, right? And as part of, part of the time in Papua New Guinea, I got to walk the Kokoda Trail, Kokoda Track to all Australians. It was quite funny, actually. I arrived in, um, for ADRA to work in uh, the start of June, and I said to my boss the first interview, you know, trying to find out more about me and what I wanted to do, I said, by the way, I need 10 days holiday in two months' time. <laughs> New person. Not many people do that. Um, and he said, oh, okay. I said, I've arranged this trip with my mate, Adrian Clack, and uh, we're walking the Kokoda Track. We had the opportunity to take a bunch of at-risk um, Indigenous youth um, and some elders of their community and walk the Kokoda Track with them. So you can see us with the um, Torres Strait flag, the Aboriginal flag and the Australian flag, all the porters in front and all of us behind. And this is the Port Moresby end. And you can see the country that we're, we're all smiling and, you know, great laugh. Day later, <laughs> Not happy, Jan. Uh, it was pretty steep country. I just walked, and this is a trench that was uh, in Kokoda. That's what's left of a trench in Kokoda. Uh, again, almost wiped out. You can see the mist and the fog was just um, amazing. The mud was up to your knees. And then I kept a journal, and at the back of the journal, I decided to write down all the descriptions of the types of mud that I found. 50 different types of mud that I walked through, including smell and um, the texture and the colour and the depth and how wet it was and how dry it was. 50 types of mud. Um, quite an incredible track. There's still um, munitions left over from the Japanese. And this is where one of the most famous battles occurred, Isarava, and it's where the Kokoda Memorial is. Um, 
on that. And we were actually there on the anniversary of the Battle of Isarava on the 29th of August, 1942. These pillars have courage, endurance, mateship and sacrifice listed on them. Can I go back one? So those, five, those four big uh, granite pillars there have the words on them. And most photos that you see on the internet are beside mateship and beside uh, courage, believe it or not. They don't have an endurance. Uh, not many people take pictures in front of the endurance one. Um, but these are the values that I think of when I think of Anzac. There's a, another memorial there at the Battle of Isarava. And on this rock, um, there's a little plaque. And on the rock, there's still bullet holes um, in the rock there. The Japanese were attacking, um, tried to outflank the Australians, because this is on the retreat side. The Australians were going backwards at this stage. They went backwards two-thirds, and then the Japanese ran out of supplies and got too sick, and then the uh, and Australians got reinforcements, then they moved back again. So there's two lots of battles from one end to the other. This is on the retreat, and this plaque is a picture of Bruce Kingsbury, and he is the only guy that has won a Victoria Cross on Australian territory, because Papua New Guinea then was Australian territory. They were fighting on Australia. And can I go back again? One. So the Japanese had sent a whole um, uh, company of uh, Japanese Marines up this side of this um, slope, and that is steep straight off over there. And the, Jap the Australians were fighting up the top, and then this whole company was coming up the side, and they were going to be cut off from the headquarters. If that happened, there was really no one left to fight the retreat going backwards. Bruce Kingsbury grabbed a Bren gun, which is that sort of round one with a sort of a, a rotating thing, and he held it at his, hip, at his hip, and he just charged down over this um, edge, and it wasn't nice and grassy like this, it was the forest all the way up, and he went into this company and just got the Bren gun straight into the middle of them and wiped a whole bunch out. He was trying to reload, and a sniper got him in the head, and he was dead before he hit the ground, and he turned the tide of that battle and allowed the Australians at the top to retreat and have enough soldiers there to fight the battles back. So Bruce Kingsbury got a Victoria Cross post posthumously. Where was God in all this? It's, a, it's an interesting question. First of all, war is a terrible thing. I've never been to war. I'm not sure if any of you have. If your parents have, your uncles, or one of your relatives, I encourage you, if they do talk about it, to ask them on this Anzac weekend. Because the stories are important to the next generation. <clears throat> In a world filled with sin, war is inevitable. Right? Everyone agree with that? Where was God? I think God was crying with the mothers, the children, the wounded men, all those people that are suffering because of the war. I think God is with them. Because how do you, how do you account 
for all the religious wars that have gone on. So many people in the secular world say, you know, God is the result of more wars that have started because of God than any other type. And they're right. People on both sides are praying to God to win. So who does God answer? Oh, you're praying harder. I think I'll give you the, the victory in this battle. I don't think it works like that. In Kokoda, God was, I believe God was with the fuzzy wuzzy angels. So many of those soldiers were, the wounded soldiers were carried out and it took me nine days to walk the Kokoda track, um, sometimes eight to ten to twelve hours a day. They carried through all that mud, you know, the wounded men out to survive. Most of them were Seventh-day Adventists. Most of the villages along the Kokoda track are Adventist villages. The missionaries were in there very early. And there's no pigs, the villages are very clean, and they're all Adventist villages. The Kokoda Hospital is being handed over by the government to the Adventist church today. So, for me, God was with the fuzzy wuzzy angels. <clears throat> is there such a thing as a just war? I used to be a teacher, I'll wait for an answer if you want to give one. There is. Something over there. So if we didn't have World War II, Hitler would have marched through Europe. Millions more people would have died. Absolutely. But then Stalin was fighting Hitler. Stalin killed more of his own people than he killed of the enemy. There are no good answers to these questions. I think this is the most important thing. What should we be doing in a war? We should be praying for a minimum of casualties um, among civilians on both sides, a quick resolution to conflicts if possible, and safety of our family and friends. Should we pray for anything else? There's a famous, or there's a quote from a famous Christian in World War II. Has anyone heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Very, wrote some amazing books. The Price of Discipleship, or The Cost of Discipleship, is an excellent book. But Dietrich was a Lutheran, evangelical Lutheran pastor. And he hated Nazi Germany. He hated them. He wrote about them. He talked about them, he preached about them. He was arrested by the Gestapo and put in prison for a year and a half. And when he got out, he still hated them. And he fought against them as a Christian, as a Lutheran Christian, for many years. Eventually, his hate got so strong, he joined a number of army officers and plotted to kill Hitler. A Lutheran pastor... He was caught, obviously Hitler didn't die, he was caught and he was hung along with the other army officers right at the end of World War II. But he said this, <clears throat> take my glasses off, Christians should give more offence, shock the world far more than they are doing now. Christians should take a stronger stand in the favour of the weak rather than considering first 
the possible right of the strong. Now, you think of the context that he wrote those words as in a, a Christian pastor in Nazi Germany. And you think, well, what should we as Christians be doing now? Should we become radical? Should we become active um, people against various things like injustice that we see? We shouldn't be silent. We should be doing things. So Anzac Day coming up. First of all, I think this is one of the greatest misquotes that we should never really quote in Anzac Day. And that is, greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. It's in the Bible. And people use that as evidence that the Bible supports war. Well, war was used in the Bible, but not in the New Testament where that was quoted. Should we valorise, and I try to think of a different English word than that, <laughs> valorise, build up um, anyone who's a walking thesaurus? Valorise? Glorify. Ah, I think that's a better word to understand. Thank you, I, would have thought, I should have thought of that. Should we glorify the war experience to encourage more young men and women to take up arms? If that's the way we celebrate Anzac Day, I think we're doing the wrong thing. What we should be doing is listening to those who have returned and are forced to live with the daily trauma of what they have seen, what they have done themselves or had done to them or much less listen to family members or of those who did not return from the war. Instead of glorifying the war, we should be listening to those who have returned. Christians are in a tough place when it comes to Anzac Day, I believe. It's, it's like you're probably thinking, well, if we, if we say war is wrong, then we're saying that we dishonour those soldiers who have bravely served and died for their countries, all right? But if we, are, if we say that we are the way to defeat one's enemies is through violence, then just like those in when Christ died, we spit in the face of Christ. If we're supporting violence, then what do we say with what Christ did? Not easy questions, right? Not easy questions. The Gospels make it offensively clear, and I like that word, offensively clear, that Jesus died for the very people that we most want to defend ourselves against. Jesus died for them, just like the way he died for us. Are we any more special than the people on the other side of the war? I believe this. This is my final thing. The fundamental challenge for Christians on Anzac Day is this, to honour the sacrifice and service, but not to glorify the war and violence. If we can all stand and we can read this together. They shall, not, they shall grow not old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun 
and in the morning we will remember them. Dear God, we thank you for the service that the young men and women made for our country, for our freedom. We ask that you remind us to be the ones that are listening to those who have uh, returned. We can talk and comfort those who have lost ones, loved ones as well. Help us not to glorify war, but to remember the personal sacrifice that those who have served tomorrow or Anzac Day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. From here